there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. So there appears to be a proxy war gearing up, and no, we're not talking about Ukraine. Today we're taking a look at the continent of Africa and the country of Niger, where on July 26, presidential guards turned on President Mohamed Bazoum and a coup took place. Very quickly, they shut down the borders, suspended the constitution, put a curfew in place. You know, the military now runs the country. The head of that presidential guard has named himself the president of a transitional government and neighboring countries and, you know, the Western countries are just losing their shit. Now, why are we talking about this issue? It's not really what we usually discuss on the show. Usually we're more focused on things happening within Canada. So why have we taken a special interest here? Well, this issue is about so much more than just the ousting of another government. This is a continuation of a story of Western imperialism that has been happening for decades, more than decades, for over a century um, in the continent of Africa, but also in Asia, in South America, around the world, where financial and capital interests are taking importance above the well-being and the rights of the people of these nations by Western powers. And it seems like no, it never really gets talked about enough. And Canada, who is not often named as a player, has a direct involvement that stretches far beyond what we ever get talked about. Everybody knows about France's exploitation. Everybody knows about the United States. And people talk a lot about China's recent involvement in the region. But Canada is just as guilty as everyone else, if not more. And we're going to talk about that and what this means for the region. Yeah, and when Santiago's talking about commercial needs and financial exploitation... When we're talking about Nigeria, mostly we're talking about uranium. And if you read the articles that are being put out, I guess, by BBC and most of your kind of mainstream media, that's obviously not the narrative they're going with. It's to protect counterterrorism operations. You know, very, very important. Uh, it, it's important to know that France was just kicked out of Mali after a coup there. And the folks were just like, no more. They kicked out UN peacekeepers. They kicked out the French. And so the French had to move their operations to Niger, where the U.S. also has a major operations for these armed drones that they like to fly over and bomb civilians with. And this is a big problem for them. But all of it, all of those bases and all of that investiture that's in the area 
isn't to protect the people of Nigeria. It's to protect the various resources there. But right now, I mean, uranium is the big player. And that's what's got France so upset. And I think what makes the imperialist nature of this conflict to this, you know, maybe potential conflict, all that more obvious, right? Like, their reaction tells us everything we need to know about their motivations, because it's unusual that they don't react this way to not not to every coup, right? No, no, absolutely not. Generally speaking, when it comes to international politics that involves Western nations, I mean, we all have our bullshit meters instantly kicking off whenever we hear whatever the narrative that, that's developing is. But usually they're a little more elegant in their manipulation, you could say. I think this is a situation where there is just a certain transparent audacity to the way that they're trying to frame this narrative that is just so incredibly frustrating because, I mean, Niger is a a very small landlocked nation. If you've ever looked at it on the map, you'll see that it is really 90% desert. It has an incredibly small population and really Niger is not a major player aside from the resources that it offers on the international stage in any way. So the fact that it's making headlines where the United States, where France, where Canada, where all of these Western nations are taking interest in what's happening there. And now we're talking about several other African nations that have um, U.S. and Western-backed governments are now talking about military interventions in Niger. It's completely unjustifiable by any means. And and like Jessa said, there have been recent coups where we haven't heard anything about them. And my mind instantly goes to, to Peru. And I understand that, that the situation was complicated in Peru um, with the attempt to dissolve the government by Pedro, the, the legislative assembly by Pedro Castillo, who I, I do have my criticisms of, but... It was a coup, nonetheless, where an undemocrat, uh, an, a non-democratically appointed government that w- is uh, of the opposite political ideology of Pedro Castillo is now in place and actively oppressing, it, particularly the indigenous people in Peru. And Peru is a massive uh, nation when it comes to South American affairs. And there has not been any conversations about any kind of intervention. In fact, the United States has readily offered its support for the coup government. Same thing in Bolivia. Same, we, we, we can keep pulling up examples of various times. And what the, all of these situations have in common is the U.S. will always support right-wing coups. They're looking to protect their financial interests. That's it. So you don't even have to go to South America. There are two blatant examples in the very same region. So ECOWAS is a coalition, a block of African nations, they were the first to respond to the coup in Nigeria, saying that this is absolutely unacceptable. They are going to respond with military might. And they, quote, have a zero tolerance for coups. But this is the first time they've threatened military action despite multiple coups in the region. I mentioned Mali in 2020 and Burkina Faso have also experienced coups where the constitution was suspended for a time. They are ruled by military men. Mali does have an election planned and and whatnot. I'll admit I'm not familiar enough with the politics of the region to opine on it, other than precedent had been set and these reactions are unique to what's happening in Nigeria. 
it's an interesting move being a landlocked country. They're very reliant on imports to survive. I mean, but again, you can't ignore the pressure of uranium. And that's just to give you an idea. France likes to boast about how energy independent they are. But in reality, it completely depends on their imperialist interests in African nations. Niger supplies 5% of the entire EU's uranium and like 15% of France's. In turn, you know, the EU is investing 550 odd million dollars in three years for the stability in Nigeria. Obviously, that money has gone up in smoke, according to them. It's just a reminder, too, that when the international community talks about stability and democracy, they're talking about neoliberalism. They're talking about the ability to open up markets and natural resources to international corporations, transnational corporations, Canadian mining corporations. And that is always what's at the pretext of stability. So whether that's counterterrorism or making sure democracy is in place, whatever they think that means. Um, But it's important to note that democracy does exist after coups. Many of these nations in Africa have experienced coups over and over again in regime change. And essentially, it quite often, it ends up being a proxy war between Russia and the United States or Western powers. And again, it all boils down to control over resources. A lot of fear mongers are saying, you know, Russia's definitely getting in the game here. The Wagner Group, who we know originate in Russia, it's a mercenary group. Big players in Ukraine recently attempted a coup in Moscow that had us all buzzing for about 24 hours. And, you know, Wagner's making big statements on what's happening in Africa. They've been invited to Mali to take the place of French troops there. And so you can see this kind of proxy war that we're talking about shaping up. We talk about World War Three all the time. I feel like it's constantly happening just in places that we have forgotten about or don't get reported on. And so we don't see just how sustained it is, right? Like just... Because once you start looking at Nigeria and then you start looking at the neighboring countries, you read this Intercept report that came out in 2022. And and the Intercept reports that the U.S. trained, that U.S. trained officers have attempted coups in five different West African countries. Three times in Burkina Faso, some successful, some not. Three times in Mali and once each in Guinea, Mauritiana and Gambia. That's just in Western Africa in the last year and a half. (laughs) So it's unreal the level of imperialism that happens unchecked, you know, and I think a lot of people will buy into that counterterrorism narrative that they're relying on to justify this harsh reaction, to justify whatever military intervention that they're planning. But Christ, they don't even try to hide it anymore. Let's be very clear about what this is about. Raw numbers, real quick. Niger is the fourth largest producer of uranium in the world. The majority of those uranium mines are owned by French companies. Uranium produced from Niger is responsible for 40% of France's electricity. Meanwhile, only 11% of the population of Niger 
have access to electricity. What? That's the only thing that anyone needs to know about what the involvement is here. It is as transparent as it can possibly be. And the fact that they're, they're feeding these lines of bullshit and they're getting other African nations involved in this conflict is just, it's, it's, it's a level of just absolute disgusting, audacious imperialism that it, people seem to think that we're, we've put that in the past. We haven't put that in the past. And I'm hearing that Nigeria is potentially now calling for an, uh, 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 is potentially preparing for an armed invasion of Niger as well. And at the same time, um, countries like we were just mentioning, like Mali, Burkina Faso, have declared their support for Niger in, in this situation. So this could really turn into a large multinational conflict in the region that... Um, and when it comes to just being about resources, it's the same situation in, in countries like Burkina Faso and Mali, where um, the governments there of the time have begun cutting ties with um, Canadian mining companies, for example, where um, just recently Burkina Faso uh, seized control over a Canadian mine as well as the gold. And, and one thing that has to be kept in mind is that like when you look at the the value of the resources being extracted it is several times more than the gdp of these nations they're seeing so little this is just blatant theft so when we say that like when, when we look at the west and we criticize when we criticize the west and we say that it is built off of the exploitation of impoverished nations this is what we're talking about and the people who celebrate capitalism and who believe that that Canada is in any way a good nation and we still have the reputation as peacekeepers and as uh, as friendly, you know, people. But this is what Canada is built on. This is what Western nations are built on. They're built on the exploitation. And you can believe that the human rights violations that are occurring are many because these countries do not have labor laws and Canadian companies do not have to respect labor laws. And then it's incredibly uh, easy to, um, it's incredibly difficult to hold them accountable when they're operating in these other nations. So this is, it's just so frustrating what the narrative is versus what the actual issues are, because they're completely different things. Well, the messaging that comes from the coups that we've talked about ha are along the lines of defending the fatherland, of pushing back against imperialist powers. They're not mincing words there. And I think it's tough because what you're seeing is essentially major superpowers playing around with the lives of the African people, because even the major players that we're seeing in the military or the presidents being ousted, this is the ruling class. And it's the African people that are going to suffer with the withdrawal of U.S. and EU aid and the injunctions that are likely to put on even before any bombs start falling. And it's one of those things, though, that you remain cautious of, but quite often out of necessity when revolutions occur, when pushback occurs against major powers, 
the people, the people pushing back, quite often have to side with forces that have weapons. That's just the reality. And it's so easy for then the narrative to be spun that this is a military junta, this is um, illegitimate, it's violent, even though, you know, it's a bloodless coup. And it's it reminds me of that Chris Hedges book where revolution, it gives us meaning, is a war that gives us meaning. But he talks about, you know, what happens to these movements that are initially people led, people driven, driven by the exploitation that you're talking about, driven by uncertain economics in their country, no power, lack of democracy or whatever it is. But the folks that they have to team up with, like calling in the Wagner group is a major red flag, right? Or still having the military rule a country after a coup, after promises were made and stuff like, they're not all legitimate. So it's really hard to talk about coups, um, without getting the perspective on the ground as well as to what what the people actually think are happening. But in the end, it's always just the major players going back and forth with no regard as to how that's going to impact everyday people on the ground. It's just like we see this repeated over and over again, the South China Sea in Ukraine, major conflicts brewing, and it's always the same players at the root of it. Yeah. And and that's the thing, like, oftentimes in these things, there's it's not so cut and dry as, like, good guys, bad guys, right? Like, I, I don't know too much about uh, the military that has taken power in, in, in Niger. I don't, I, I don't particularly know what their motivations are or if they're good. But at, at the end of the day, these are not issues that are better served by international interventions by western powers and that is not a very difficult point to argue because we have seen the results of western intervention over and over and over and over again so really what it comes down to is like you don't have to like you don't have to pick sides here you can simply condemn this these interventions because it's also very transparent what what they're actually about and when it comes to sec- like f- securing proper rights, that that responsibility and and it's difficult, but that lies with the people. It, it will always come back to the people, not international militaries, because they're not. There's no international military that intervenes for the good of their heart. You know, they don't. They're not people who care. They're authoritarian attack dogs that are just trained to kill. It's not about saving anyone. I get that at the same time, though, there have been circumstances where folks have traveled to fight imperialist powers as well, fight against them. I think of Che Guevara. No, yeah, but that's very different. That because It's fighting- different for us, but it's the same idea of having outsiders come in and help mobilize and shift power. Um, But it is done in completely different ways. I will give you that. One just needs to read guerrilla warfare to understand the differences on how those forces end up operating. But I still think there is an international community. Like it's hard to allow people 
<laughs> I don't I don't want to come off as a sounding like white savior at all, but when we call for an international solidarity, it, it's got to kind of go both ways. So I, I, I try not to just like blanketly condemn international intervention. When I say international, I, I do mean national, though, right? Like yes. nations intervening. Yes. Thank you. As opposed to people. Or communities. It's very it, that 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 that's where I draw the distinction, because nations, the motivation there will always be poor, always. Because yeah, just re- reading through that Intercept report and how the U.S. trains people, nationals too. So sometimes they're not even all boots on the ground. It's they go to U.S. military schools, they receive U.S. training, and then they get sent back to do what they need to do and take over the country. And you know that's just a a blueprint that the U.S. repeats over and over again. But essentially, uh, Chigavera was was doing the same thing where he would provide the knowledge and the expertise and military training to who needed it, to the nationals there on the ground so that they could get the job done themselves. You know, it legitimizes the conflict even more and allows it allows the U.S. to give a, hey, oh, it wasn't us kind of approach um, for Che Guevara. And, and that movement, though, it was about empowerment. Right. And it was about actually allowing the people to then lead the movement they were within, but not from a hands off approach. Right. But I don't argue with you when I, I it's we're talking about national powers using their economic superiority and military superiority to manipulate the conditions of another country just for their own best interest. Right. For their their markets. And Canada's no different. Right. We're big players on the arms scene and massive in the mining industry. And that is why we take certain positions, particularly in recent coups in South America. Now, when we say massive in the mining industry, it is difficult to fathom just how massive. If, if people were to think, OK, what percentage of mining companies around the world are Canadian? Stop for a second and think. Well, may, make a guess, you know? Ten. The answer is 60%. 60. A majority of mining companies around the world are Canadian. Shocking statement. People it's have It's funny that no doesn't make clue. our national imagery, though. You know, and all the stuff we put on bills. Right? Like African mines and South American mines are never really part of there. But, man, we are big players. Huge. And in Africa, massive players. And so <laughs> when when we start talking about Canada's involvement here, well, that's a lot of interest in a region. And we just are not getting a fair amount of criticism for that. Because these companies have been regularly found to be in violations of multiple human rights um, the, the labor laws, everything you can imagine, because they don't have to follow those when they're in these um, impoverished nations. They, there's been instances of activists being murdered and the most likely is culprits being connected to Canadian mining companies. These are allegations and reports, but it, it goes beyond just basic like poor labor laws and corrupt governments and paying off literally murdering the people who try to resist this. One thing that didn't get 
much coverage at all, just as an example, is um, just a couple years ago um, in Burkina Faso, actually, which, of course, is a neighbor to Niger, um, several miners got trapped in they were stranded in a mine um, that is operated by a Canadian company. And it was found that the conditions that they were working in and the safety was completely inadequate. And this got very little coverage at all. And there have been many people killed at a variety of different Canadian mining companies as well. For, for example, like in Burkina Faso, 75% of the country's gold experts are owned by Canadian firms. 75%. So they have massive interest in Burkina Faso. And now with the the coup government after their recent coup as well, they're now kicking out Canadian companies and seizing their gold as well. Nice. So you can see why... a. Canada, which really, when, when you, you think about it, has no reason to have any claims to any of these resources, would be involved in attempting to undermine um, the current power in these countries and attempt to overthrow it through various imperialist tactics, which is what they're doing in the shadows. You hear about the U.S., you hear about France, you're not hearing about us. No, and even China gets criticism for moving into Africa and, you know, carving up their natural resources as well. But quite often we get off scot-free. We've got a really good PR team. We've talked about that a little bit on the show. Our 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 state's craft is quite good at depicting Canadians as peacekeepers, peace-loving. And so even when you tell Canadians this, you know, like, I think some would look at that 60% mining figure and be like, awesome, that's good for our economy and you know without a thought of to the workers exploited or the global implications i want to read france's response to what happened in niger for a second to tie it in anyone attacking french nationals the army diplomats and right of way would see france respond immediately and intractably the President of the Republic will not tolerate any attack against France and its interests. So when you get these giant multinational corporations, all of a sudden, they're treated on the same level as sovereign soil. It, they're equating the denial of resource extraction to invasions of sovereign nations of attacking their army personnel, for example. They're equating the same ceasing those mining operations or withholding the extraction or stopping exports. It, it's seen as this national interest, and it goes back to these economic explanations, arguments that are always used to trump basic human rights or basic international law. That is not French soil. That's a French company's assets. And there is no right under international law to invade a nation based on your economic interests. It has to be at least guised in security, but it's not even anymore. Because the reality is all these nations, like they, 
we do. We depend on the exploitation of labor to make our economy work. And that is of national interest and security. And so they can make these confounded arguments in the legislature and in the courtrooms to justify this kind of overreaction to people essentially seizing their land back. It's the only reason that capitalism still continues to function to this day. It's the reason it hasn't completely collapsed. It's through the exploitation of impoverished nations. And this is an issue that unless we are... This is why we need to... This is why we're talking about international issues and why we need to pay attention to what is going on around the world. Because as long as we continue to tolerate these actions, we will never see change. And it's not just destroying. It's both destroying the lives of the people who are being exploited. It's also at the same time destroying the planet and... And the people who are benefiting from it really in reality are are very, very few people. And it does not have to be this way. It doesn't. And like I see so often the narrative of like these countries are failing because of their own fault, because they failed to implement proper market rules or whatever, yada, yada, yada. Right. Same bullshit. But it's like, no, they're, they're failing because we keep our foot on their neck. We make sure that they cannot get up. We hold them down. And there and and it links back to everything, as always. All of these things link back to everything. Because then how do you begin to justify these things? Well, that's why we have as much racism as we have. Because if we actually saw the people of these nations as human beings, just like we are human beings, equal to us, we would never be able to tolerate the way we're treating them. So it comes back once again to the same issues we always talk about. To that dehumanization and it's just completely fucking disgusting i'm sorry i don't know how else to put it but it just it fills me with such anger because it it, it is how every time we talk about it it's all oh it's all so connected and also so part of the same bullshit and 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 we just do not talk about this we're not taught this it's not something that's on our mind and then when you try and talk about it, sometimes people say you got to focus on local issues. This is a local issue. Just because there is a couple thousand kilometers, I don't know, distances between us, doesn't it doesn't change anything. We're all connected in this. We're all being oppressed by the same force. And we're just lucky enough to be on the end that we, we, we get the minimal we get the comforts that we get, but we're still being exploited, but it does not compare to the level of exploitation there. But everyone's being exploited for the benefit of a few fucking assholes. Like, I'm sorry, it's just... And I love how, you know, you read the articles about what's going on in Africa, West Africa, and they talk about the stability and the GDP or how their economy was just so great when they had stability or they had essentially a US-imposed president. Because even Nigeria who are talking about military intervention, their own president's election was highly contested and, you know, sus. But, and so they'll use the GDP, they'll use the economy as some sort of measure, like they were doing so much better, we need to help them, like this coup will just not survive. And you'll read reports that, you know, economies that are run by military rulers don't tend to do as well, but they they completely leave out the fact that it, economic sanctions are often put on, that trade partnerships 
are used as leverage in this so-called democracy. And so it's no wonder that, you know, they're able to use these numbers when in reality, they completely omit the fact that you gave us near the beginning, that only 10% of the people in Nigeria have reliable electricity, you know, but their economy was doing a lot better. So don't worry, right? We've got to keep that on track. And again, it's just no war, but class war. You know what this makes you think of is, do you know the Eric Andre meme where um, like it's like he shoots someone and it's like, oh no, why would they, what, do you know the one I'm talking about? Why would you do that? Yeah, like it's 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 like it, that, that's what I think of. It's like you know, with these economic international sanctions, like you know, shoots them with the sanctions. Oh no, why would they? Why would these countries be failing? Like throw the rock, hide the hand, kind of thing. And if we expect Canada to respect the workers of Nigeria, I guess we'd have to first expect them to respect workers here in Canada, and that's anything but. So we're going to transition to our second topic, summer of the strike. Workers are pushing back, not just workers. We have to shout out to all the tenants on strike, too, before we start this little roundup of workers pushing back here. To all the tenants in Thorn Park at John and King, New Westminster, B.C., keep up the good fight. These folks need solidarity. They're pushing back against corporate landlords. If you missed Blueprints of a Rent Strike, which is about two episodes ago, Big mistake. Go back and listen to it. It's a model on how workplaces, communities, everybody can organize and fight back. So definite shout out to those folks. Uh, I'm excited to see those strikes win. But a lot of workers across the country are on strike, especially here in Ontario. And I imagine there's more than I'm going to be able to list here. But we've got salt miners. Did you know this? Did you know that we've got like about 250 salt miners in northern Ontario? They've been on strike for five months, Santiago. Strikes are not easy. Unifor Local 240 and 1959, they are really slogging it out. They just rejected the last offer. And what's I like to note about this particular labor dispute is there's three units quite often. Locals are divided up into different bargaining units. You know, the workers might need different things, but it makes it easier for employers to leverage one unit against another. So get one to sign a deal and the others will be more pressured to follow suit, right? There'll be fewer people on the picket line. It's often used against them. In this case, when one unit rejected the offer, the other two units paused their bargaining or pause the voting for uh, what they were going through at the time. So it was in solidarity to make sure that everyone moved forward together. That's a long strike. Five months. Um, my dad talked, or who came on here and talked about a three-week strike, and folks were just starving. I mean, strike pay is not a lot. So if there's a, a solidarity fund with there, we should try to share it in the so show notes. But folks in Ontario will all know for sure that also, metro grocery workers are on strike. You know, those frontline workers that we called champions and then we took away their hero pay or whatever we called it. Not to mention, we just had an episode on how grocers, not just Loblaws, because Metro is also posting record profits and they're really going at it against their workers. Do you know those bastards just cut them off their benefits as well? So all those striking workers, 
um, are without their benefits for the time being. Talk about demonstrating class warfare there, right? You're not negotiating anymore at all. You're, you're being vindictive at that point. So Metro workers are trying to get a fair deal. They have seen a lot of solidarity. If you remember our show with Justice for Workers, they have been on the picket lines with those folks day in and day out right across the province. They're using their resource to they're using their resources to garner solidarity for those workers uh, because those are one of the lowest paid workers we've seen on strike in a long time. Port workers Port workers, it's always very exciting when the dock workers go on strike. We call them longshore workers. They used to be longshoremen, but I don't think we do that anymore, right? And historically, major, major concessions have been won with port strikes because of the impact that they have. When we talk about the supply chain being delayed and slow, this is exasperated when these folks go on strike. So it's no wonder we see the federal liberals chime in and use all of their threats and coercion to basically try to force workers into a deal. I would love the inside scoop, though, on what happened between the bargaining union, what happened between the bargaining unit and workers, because we've seen deals go back and forth on that one and not a lot of details released on their final offer at all. So... Not sure if workers are getting a fair deal, but for now, the work action has been called off. That really had the potential to put the country to a standstill. You know, if you started to see solidarity strikes go on coast to coast, that was on our our Pacific coast, but, you know, a major port for imports and exports. So it it was certainly feeling the pinch. I also have to give a shout out, obviously, to QP905. My local library workers in Bradford are on strike. And although we like to shit on the Ontario NDP here, they have been out in full force. And it's really a small unit up there, the Bradford Library. So it's nice to see Fred Hahn and Merritt Stiles both up there giving a boost to workers. I don't like to admit it, but no one ever comes up here. So I can imagine they appreciated that. And I'll tell you... The president of QP905 is something else. Um, uh, Christian Jaisek is an incredible leader and a real revolutionary. So it, it doesn't surprise me that she was able to garner a lot of support for her workers there up in Bradford, Ontario. And obviously a lot of people are talking about the Hollywood actors on strike and the writers that went on strike before them. Hollywood's at a standstill. People think it's all about the actors like obviously everyone laments at the fact that some of these folks make hundreds of millions of dollars on a film but really I think it's bringing up the status quo for some of the writers and smaller part-time actors I'm seeing some horror stories come out of this strike you know some of these reality shows where they're filming people day in and day out when you work it out they're getting paid like less than like three dollars an hour on some of these shows or we've seen residual checks that come in from streaming services for three cents for writers on very popular I've, I've shows. I've seen ones that come in for zero. I'm not even kidding. I saw one. They received a check. Zero cents. See, yeah, we don't get to see those stories. We see all the glamour of Hollywood. But, you know, there's a lot of folks. They have to work quite a few hours to earn their health benefits, which is a huge deal in the United States. And the... They're fighting back against the implications of AI as well. And I think that's one of the first unions we've seen address that and really kind of put that in their 
negotiations is promises that AI won't replace them. Uh, so it's curious to see where that one goes. I just want to share a funny tidbit. I saw a meme. I think it came from like a Star Trek fan club. And it was just really well appreciated by me. I'm not a big Star Trek fan, but. I would have thought you were. No. Do I look like a Trekkie? I, I don't know. It's just it seems like the type of, I, you, you fit the description. I, I've actually never really watched any Star Trek. So I, I don't know if I would be a fan or not, but I kind of assumed you were for some reason. I mean, I don't hate it, but I definitely wouldn't consider myself a Trekkie. But I do appreciate their culture. I mean, they seem like a tight bunch and they often make me chuckle. And this meme is no exception. It was like, we got this. There's over 5,000 hours of footage for us to rewatch. You take your time at the bargaining table and come back with a fair deal. You know, we know what it's like to have to wait for new content. We'll be fine. And I thought that was just so clever. There's like a million ways you can show solidarity with workers. And that was one I obviously wouldn't have thought of. But to round it off. So why we're doing this, I, it, it's not just to give a shout out to these locals that are doing the most that they can do to get a fair deal, right? This is the last stage, just like we talked about in Blueprints of a Rent Strike. This is the last tool any workers want to use. So when they're actually out there on the picket lines, it's important. They've tried everything else and they absolutely need our solidarity. So that could be visiting them on the front lines. That could be writing to your local paper, writing to the employer. In There's, again, just a litany of ways that you can make sure that you know you're on the side of workers and not on the side of, you know, the federal liberals who would order you back to work or shady employers, right, trying to exploit workers. But the least you could do is not drive through their fucking pickup line. Or the least you could do is not drive through their picket line. The least. So I'd be... <laughs> The very least. <laughs> so, I mean, I shouldn't be chuckling because Ottawa Hydro workers, they're also on strike. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said this was the summer of the strike here in Ontario. The IBEW Local 636, they are on strike and they're reporting some vehicular violence on their picket lines in the last few days, talking about people running the picket lines I think I even saw reports where, you know, they had identified a supervisor as one of the culprits. And funny how that happens, I, right? It's so it always seems like the people driving these cars are not so bystander and it ends they're up, bootlickers. Yeah. They're either scabs crossing the line. I, I mean, I, I equate them to that Kyle Koch guy or whatever his name was that dumped mulch on the mural. You know, like you see a line, you understand its importance and you think whatever you've got to do is just more important. And so these people are not, they're facing incredible violence on the picket line just for trying to get a fair deal from their employer because it's inconveniencing other people. People need to realize that is the whole point of a strike. It's to be disruptive. Sitting down at the table hasn't worked. You know, being a good employee <laughs> just didn't get you the raise. You need to know, the employer needs to know that what they need can be disrupted at any time. They need to be reminded that workers make the factory go round, not the other way around. So it needs to be disruptive. And sometimes that includes the general public. Teachers are a great example. When they go on strike, we all get disrupted. It's hard. But that's when it's even more important to make sure that they know you have their back. And, and, and I know that our audience knows this, but every single worker, 
protection law, you know, the eight hour work wage, like um, limit of amount of hours, a limit of um, that having a minimum, all, all kinds of things. I, 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 my brain's not working right now, so I can't list this all the long things. weekend is brought to you by <laughs> unions. But yeah, all of these things, five day work week, all of these things were won by worker action, by by strikes, by unions, all of these things. If not for collective action, we would be wor- they would be working everybody 12 hour shifts, seven days a week, working you into the ground for pennies. That is what these companies would do if they were given the chance. They do not pay you well out of the goodness of their heart because they know based on how the system of capitalism works that they can take away our essential goods and services, price us out of these things and force us to have to, regardless of whether or not we think we're getting a fair deal or not, because, you know, capitalists always love to talk about like this. Uh, well, you you were you agreed to the contract, yada, yada. Well, you know, learn what coercion and extortion is first, because that is the society we live in. They would pay us nothing and exploit us to working us to death if they could. It reminds me of that Chris Rock line, like how he hates minimum wage. I fucking hate minimum wage. Minimum wage is your boss saying, fuck you. If I could pay you less, I would. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And 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 oftentimes they do because we know that, that uh, wage theft is the largest source of theft out of any type of theft every single year. It is. And it often, more often than not, goes unresolved. Um, so <laughs> they could pay us less. They, they often do. The laws only do so much because they get away with it constantly. And every sing- and I know every single per- every single friend of mine who has ever talked to has multiple stories of times when they have had their their labor and their wages stolen from them, and they never feel empowered to be able to do anything about it. Why? But more often than not, as an individual, it's very difficult to navigate that. You 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 deal with a little bit of exploitation out of fear of retribution, out of uh, a disempowerment that comes from not having the knowledge and the tools uh, uh, available to you to know exactly how it is to fight that. Most people do not know how to fight that. So there is countless amounts of uh, exploitation that goes up beyond the law that is happening all the time. And it's why we need to be able to collectively strike. And it's why these things are never only about the, the the individual unions. Every time a union goes on strike, every time workers are fighting for something more, that is all of us. Everybody benefits from that. That is setting a precedent for how we should be treated. So we need to be constantly offering our solidarity, regardless of whether or not, regardless of what we think. The only exception I'll give is police unions, because those don't count, because fuck police unions. Sorry, just disclaimer. But, Police yeah. unions aren't unions. I'm talking to the New Brunswick, what do they call it? Federation of Labor. They include police unions. So does the Canadian Federation of Labor, I believe. Yeah. No, and that's the thing is that we know like unions in Canada, there is a lot of systemic issues and they're not nearly as strong or as um, revolutionary as they should be. And there's a lot of work to do, but... What we're seeing here, I think, is it it is uplifting to know that more and more across the country and and beyond just Canada, even we're seeing it like in in the States, we're seeing it across the world. More and more workers are rising up and demanding more because we are being 
everyone is being stretched to the absolute limits. And and this is this is what it's going to take. And just a quick note on the vehicular violence, because there was an incident uh, in High Park just a couple days ago where uh, a city employee uh, who works for Parks and Recreation was shoving a counter protester with their car uh, while they were protesting, while people were protesting the um, banning of automobiles in High Park. Uh, The counter protester was obviously in favor of that and they shoved them with their car. And I, I keep seeing more and more often, it seems to me that vehicular violence is becoming uh, increasingly common. And I don't think we're doing nearly enough about that because it is, there, there's nothing an individual can do against a two-ton chunk of metal. This is beyond absurd and there needs to be much more serious consequences um, for, for this. I know but when I first told you that story of the Ottawa hydro workers, you're just like, is there not a law against this? Like, how is this okay? How are we reading about on Twitter that, you know, without charges stemming from it? But then, you know, it gets us into the discussion of police on, on picket lines and who they serve. And we know how that discussion unfolds. But I'll tell you, I've I've never been to a picket line that hasn't faced some sort of ugly resistance or a car being very pushy, you know, you're used to being yelled at, but it's very, it's quite common. I remember at the York University picket line and that was a soft picket. You know, folks were just asked to wait a few minutes. It it never turned into a hard picket where, you know, nobody crosses. And there were students trying to get to class. Like who's that eager to get to class? And they would just be rushing through that line, even though you could see, you know, People on on strike lines, they're wearing reflective gear. There are marshals. There are things put up. But from my experience, when police are there on the line, they're there to make sure that you keep moving, that you keep walking, that you're not impeding things, that you're falling within the bylaws or the laws, and so that they they don't arrest you or shut down your picket line. And so that power just doesn't serve striking workers at all if if police are there it's never to protect the picket line we know we know what side they're on so they have solidarity with the ruling class which is why we need more solidarity with each other with fellow workers with fellow exploited peoples yeah so we need these tenant strikes to win we need these small locals to win their battles because like Bruno reminded us when we asked him how do you get people past the apathy how do you get them to have the courage to know that they can beat their bosses back and it's by example so for every strike that wins another set of workers understands their collective power and those around them and another bad boss understands the consequences of fucking with workers so it's critical it's critical that we do whatever we can to help these folks strike to win That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.